Hey there, Cremaholics. It's your host, Kenzie, and I'm bringing you another episode this week. But I am not bringing you a brand new, fresh episode. I am actually bringing you an old episode, which was our very first episode that we ever did on Cremaholics. However, over the last eight months, Holly and I have really grown so much as your hosts. And over the last couple months, I just kept telling Holly I was really unhappy with the way that I executed our very first episode and Kathleen Tarowski. There was times during that episode that we were making jokes, we were laughing, and we were giggling. After we have come this far and we spoke to so many families of victims, I never in a million years would have ever wanted Kathleen's family to hear that episode. It was unprofessional, it was distasteful, and so today, I am bringing you another brand new, better version of Kathleen's story. I will admit that I had no business covering that kind of story when we first started. It was too heavy, it's too important, and it needs to be talked about in such a better manner. So today, I will be telling you the domestic violence story of Kathleen Tarowski. (music) Kathleen grew up in Lake County, Illinois with her family, her mom, her dad, and her little brother. According to a statement made by her younger brother, Kathleen was the older sister that every younger brother dreamed of having. Her family and friends stated that Kathleen was a super bright, loving girl. She was a very goal-oriented person and had a beaming future ahead of her. At the time of her death, Kathleen was working at the Condell Medical Center where she worked as a physical therapist. And at the time, she was also attending school to obtain her degree. Many medical professionals in the area thought really highly of Kathleen. And so after graduation, she had a job waiting on her at the Easter Seal Society in Woodstock, Illinois which is about a 30-ish minute drive from where Kathleen lived in Fox Lake, Illinois. Everything at that point had seemed to be just falling into place for Kathleen until she started dating a much older man named John Cumby in September of 1989. Although I really do not like focusing on these murderers and these abusers, I think it is important to tell about his background, which I believe will better explain how Kathleen actually ended up being murdered by John. John was 33 years old, he was a former cop, and at the time he was working as a paramedic and a volunteer firefighter. What really kills me the most about this entire situation is the fact that every single role that John had, he was supposed to be somebody that people could trust and somebody that even children could look up to. Prior to Kathleen's murder, John actually had a wife and a young son named Johnny. To protect his wife's identity, I'm going to refer to her as Maureen. My family actually personally knew John and Maureen, and I want to touch a bit on that because my family actually ties into this case pretty heavily. My parents, Bill and Louise, are actually my grandparents, but they did raise me, so I refer to them as my mom and dad. My parents moved from the city of Chicago with my birth mom and her siblings into the northern suburbs in Lake County, Illinois. They ended up moving into the same neighborhood where John and Maureen lived. My parents lived just four houses up from them at the time, and John and Maureen did come to my parents' home and introduce themselves to my family. My mom has always said that right away she just got this really strange vibe from John, but she thought that maybe she was just overthinking it too much. But as women, I really do believe that most of the time our intuition is totally right. However, even though she did have those feelings that maybe there was something off, she really did think she was just overthinking it. So she allowed my Aunt Lauren to start babysitting for John and Maureen. 
Shortly after my Aunt Lauren started babysitting for John and Maureen, she started noticing that Maureen would always have bruises all over her body. And not only would Maureen have bruises all over her body, she also stated that when her and the other neighborhood kids would be outside playing, they could hear John just screaming on the top of his lungs at Maureen. John and Maureen did not actually have a very long marriage. It only lasted about 10 years. In August of 1990 is when they finally decided to call it quits. But if you remember from before what I said, John and Kathleen started dating in September of 89. So him and her had been dating almost a full year before John and Maureen ended their marriage. In August of 1990, Maureen very, very bravely decided to leave John after he savagely attacked her with a flashlight and ripped her hair out of her head. Maureen again being very brave, was able to press charges against John for the very first time, and thankfully an order of protection was put in place after he was charged with battery. But shortly after his arrest, Kathleen ends up bailing John out of jail for $600, and for unknown reasons, Maureen drops the charges and the order of protection. After this, Maureen just ends up leaving town with their son and never looking back, and you never hear anything else about Maureen. And I'm sure this is because she feared for her life. Her ex-husband was a savage beast. It's shocking to me that Maureen even made it out alive. Prior to John and Kathleen dating, my parents did move out of that neighborhood. So it's not like they would have kept in touch with Maureen after they moved or would even known what had happened to Maureen. After Maureen left John in August of 1990 is when things started really taking a turn for the worse between him and Kathleen. Right away after their separation, Kathleen and John moved in together that same month. After nine months of living together in May of 1991, they ended up purchasing a home together in Lake County, Illinois. However, just one month after they purchased their home together, in June, Kathleen ends up leaving their home and moving back into her parents' house. But she only ends up staying for just about three weeks. And I'm sure by now, we can all assume... John was probably being abusive towards Kathleen, so she decided to leave. But it also seems like he was able to manipulate her and convince her to move back home. But just five months later, in November of 1991, Kathleen ends up moving back into her parents' home for good until her murder in May of 1992. A co-worker testified in court on her behalf that one day in November, she got a call from Kathleen and she was very frantic and upset and saying, I need you to come here right now. I thought he was going to kill me for sure this time. She stated when she arrived at their home, Kathleen was extremely shaken up and she had red marks all over her neck. After Kathleen bravely moved out of their home and into her parents where she was safe, this ends up just setting John off and he starts acting like a complete psycho nut job. On December 31st, 1991, Kathleen and her close friends decided they wanted to go down to the city of Chicago and celebrate the new year, so they ended up getting a hotel room for the night. They really did not, like, have any type of solid plans for the night, so they were just kind of winging it. And last minute, they decided they wanted to take a cab down to the Hard Rock Cafe that was close to their hotel. Kathleen and her friends get their cab, they drive over to the Hard Rock, and when they arrive and exit their cab, John is standing right there at the entrance of the Hard Rock. Kathleen did not even tell John that she was heading to the city for the night. So it can only make us assume that John had followed her all the way from the northern suburbs to the city, which is like a good 45 minute to an hour drive, if not more, if there's traffic. Then he follows them to their hotel, 
and then he followed the cab to the freaking hard rock. Kathleen and her friends end up walking right past John, and they don't say a single thing. Because they were super uneasy about him being there, they ended up just having like one drink and they leave the Hard Rock and go back to their hotel room. After New Year's Eve, less than two weeks later on January 11th, Kathleen went out with a group of friends again to a local bar called Bogey's where she lived. About 30 minutes after being there, John just randomly shows up again. Kathleen and her friends are really shocked because, again, nobody invited him. But this time, things were a little different. John actually went up to Kathleen and they were getting along. They were talking and he ended up buying himself, her and her friends, some drinks. Everything seemed to be totally normal despite the fact that he's a total creep and just showed up there. John ends up pulling Kathleen on the dance floor and one of her friends pulls another one of their friends on the dance floor. The four of them were dancing, having a good time, laughing, cutting up, and everything again seemed totally fine. That was until Kathleen's friend looks over and John is biting Kathleen in her face. Yes, I said biting. He was biting this girl's face. And he wasn't just like nibbling on her face in some like really weird, creepy, flirty way. This dude was biting her face so hard that he caused her to bleed. Her friend thankfully grabs Kathleen away and rushes her into the bathroom. Because it was dark on the dance floor, she didn't really see the extent of the injuries until she got Kathleen into the bathroom with the light. This sick psycho bit her cheek, her nose, and her lips, leaving huge bite marks and blood just pouring from her face. I cannot imagine in a million years what it would feel like to have some grown man bite onto my face to the point where there's blood pouring from my face. I cannot imagine how bad this poor girl felt. A bouncer did witness the incident and kicked John out of the bar and her friend called the police. But before the police could get there, John ended up slashing all the tires in the convertible top on her geo tracker. You just bit this poor girl's face off and then you're going to trash her car too. Like, you're just an evil, vile piece of shit. And I'm sorry for cussing because typically I don't cuss on here, but this just enrages me. How do you bite somebody in the face and then also go and trash their car? This man is a literal monster. After this incident, Kathleen goes home and her dad is just freaked out by the extent of her injuries and he ends up forcing her to go get medical attention. While there, they did take pictures, they collected evidence, and John thankfully ends up being arrested and charged with battery and an order of protection again was put in place. However, shortly for unknown reasons, Kathleen drops the charges in the order of protection. Along the way, as we have covered similar cases, this is not unheard of when someone is in an abusive relationship. The abuser tends to hold so much power over their victim, it's common for the victim of the abuse to go back to their abuser because they have so much mental and emotional hold on them. Shortly after Kathleen drops the charges in the order of protection, she was at another bar called Frigates with just her girlfriends that night, and as they were leaving the bar, they noticed that John's car was sitting in the parking lot, but he did not ever come inside the bar. When they leave, they noticed a car was following them, and her friend mentions to her that she's pretty sure it's John following them. But for whatever reason, Kathleen is like just in denial, and she says, no, that can't be him. He's not going to follow me like this, even though he's done it in the past. She says, no, 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 it's not him. But as the car got closer, the license plate said FLFD which stands for Fox Lake Fire Department, which is where John was a volunteer firefighter. Just a few weeks after that following incident in April of 1992, just one month before Kathleen's murder, she was having another girls' night out at Frigates again, and of course, in walks John, uninvited. Kathleen went to ask him to leave her alone, 
but her friends testified that the two of them ended up getting in a big argument for about 30 minutes. What was said during this argument is unknown, but I can only assume that she was probably begging John to just leave her alone and let her live her life. Kathleen was only 21 at this time and he was 33. I'm sure she just wanted to be a normal 21-year-old girl for a while. So at this point, John has full-blown stalked Kathleen. He's following her. He's showing up at places where she is. And the last time, they got into an argument and she was begging him to leave her alone. However, a neighbor of John's testified that one month after that last incident, the three of them were standing in John's driveway on May 2nd, 1992, which is three days before her murder, and the three of them were chatting about life. He said that John and Kathleen were telling this guy that, yes, we have had a lot of issues over the last two years, but we are very happy, we are going to counseling, and we are going to work through our problems together. The neighbor testified that the two of them seemed to be very happy and their relationship seemed to be finally heading in the right direction. Hey y'all, guess what? I have something super exciting to share with you. Have you ever heard of Unsolved Case Files? It is a murder mystery game that gives you the opportunity to put your armchair detective skills to the test. It is so cool because it's as if you were given a real authentic case file and asked to solve it. The file includes realistic material like witness statements, suspect interrogation notes, newspaper articles, mugshots, and real life like evidence to help you solve the case. Every case file has three different objectives and after you solve each objective, you get to open an envelope that contains further evidence to help get the case solved. But if your skills aren't as sharp as you thought, no biggie because you can go online where they offer hints if you get stuck. What I really love about unsolved case files is that it is a really fun group activity. My husband is not big into true crime, but when I bought ours, he was stoked at trying to beat me to solve our first case. And if you're anything like me, a true crime addict and a top-notch armchair detective, then you will think that it'll be a breeze to solve this case. However, to my surprise, it took us two whole date nights to solve our case. Even though it took two nights, it was the most fun date night because it felt like we were going to be able to solve a real case and help bring real justice. It felt so cool opening up the evidence bag it came in. It felt as if I had finally finished my degree and finally got my dream job as a criminal investigator. Unsolved Case Files currently has five different case files and we seriously cannot wait to get our hands on the rest of them to see if we can solve them in less time. I really love that Unsolved Case Files is not one of those subscription boxes where you have to pay monthly in order to get more evidence to solve a case. This gives you everything you need all at one time, giving you the opportunity to solve it in one night. That's if your skills are just that good. I highly recommend putting your skills to the test by going to unsolvedcasefiles.com and ordering your case file today. Even better, you can use my code UCF5CP to get $5 off your purchase. Karmaholics, don't wait. Get those cases solved. Although this neighbor testified that their relationship seemed to be better and that they were heading in the right direction, her parents were still very against her seeing John. So this neighbor testified that Kathleen would often hide her geotracker inside John's garage, so if her parents were to drive by John's house to check and see if she was there, they wouldn't see her car. In the evening on May 5th, around 6.30, when Kathleen was at home with her parents where she lived, the phone ends up ringing and her mom answers and it was John asking to talk to Kathleen. Although she was super hesitant about it, she gives Kathleen the phone, but she says she's unaware of what the two talked about, but Kathleen did not seem to be in any type of distress. 
At 8.30 p.m. after their family dinner, Kathleen says goodbye to her parents and her little brother and leaves their home. Little did they know that this unfortunately would be the very last time they ever saw their daughter alive. The next morning at 6.45 a.m., Kathleen was discovered deceased inside the driver's seat of her geotracker on Raybine Drive, which is a heavily secluded area in Spring Grove, Illinois. When her body was found, Kathleen was wearing a DePaul hoodie with a jean jacket with jeans that were unzipped and open in the front. Kathleen's skull was bashed in to the point where this poor girl's brain was showing. Her teeth were all knocked out, and her entire body was covered in bite marks, and there was blood splattered all over her car. I want to go into a little bit of detail about the location where Kathleen was found, because John actually almost got away with it, because of where this location was. First, remember when I said my parents moved to another part of town and never spoke to or seen John again after they moved? Well, Raybine Drive was in my parents' new neighborhood where they had moved years prior. Behind my parents' home was a set of railroad tracks that ran all the way from Wisconsin into the city of Chicago. And when I say behind my parents' house, I mean like literally they were in the backyard. Growing up, the train would go by at night and just like shake our entire house like there was an earthquake. If you got onto the tracks and went down less than a football field, there was Raybine Drive. But John had no idea that he was leaving Kathleen's body and car right behind my parents' home. John's home was in Lake County, Illinois, and he left her body in McHenry County, Illinois. However, even though it is two separate counties, his home was less than a mile from where she was found. The main road that divided the two counties is called State Park Road, and even though I say main road, this is a very teeny road. I'd say it's like maybe three car lengths wide, if that. So it's not even like her body was found way across town from his home like his defense tries to argue later on. Not only is this place very close to John's home, but John also worked for Raybine Construction for a very short time prior to dating Kathleen. And the area where he left her body is a place that Raybine would often bring their equipment. So he knew exactly what was back in this area. And he knew the how like heavily secluded and swampy that area was back there. After John leaves Kathleen and her car, He ends up getting onto the railroad tracks that lead right to his house, and he walks less than a mile to get back to his home. Before we go any further, I want to talk about really important eyewitness testimony. We know that my parents' home is in this neighborhood where John left Kathleen's body. So my aunt Samantha was at my parents' home that night of May 5th babysitting. Around 11.30, my aunt Samantha ends up leaving my parents' home to go back to her house. And as she is driving through our neighborhood, there is a car that is coming at her right in the middle of the road. The car ends up swerving around her and driving right past her. She ends up testifying that this car is a smaller, dark-colored SUV. The driver had dark hair and a dark mustache, and the person in the driver's seat was slumped against the window and not moving. Little did my aunt know at that time, she was actually passing John and Kathleen. After the authorities find her body, they end up going right to John to ask about her whereabouts because at this point, they know the history between the two of them. Law enforcement ends up going to his work at St. Therese Hospital where he's currently working as a paramedic and they end up asking him if he owned a geotracker. He ends up telling law enforcement that him and Kathleen both did own a geotracker. But the law enforcement just did not hold back and they say, we found your geotracker and there's blood all over it. He responds with, 
where is Kathy? You can check my alibis. Which seems to be like a super suspect response, especially when they haven't even accused you of anything and you're already offering up your alibis. Law enforcement ends up telling John that they found her deceased on Raybine Drive inside her geotracker. They said that John did not have any reaction right away. He just kind of sat there quietly. And then he automatically just blurts out, I did not see her on the 3rd, 4th, or 5th of May. John continues to open up to law enforcement, but then he ends up making the statement to them that him and Kathleen's relationship was not serious, that they were just friends. But he ends up going on to contradict himself and ends up telling them that they had plans to be married. Obviously, nothing is adding up at this point, so law enforcement wants to go ahead and just start pushing him a little further. Their idea works, and John ends up opening up a little more and ends up telling them at 6.30 p.m. on May 5th, he ends up calling Kathleen to ask for help to study for his paramedic test. He says that she ends up saying yes, but calls back around 8 p.m. and says she's not going to be able to make it, but doesn't ever give a reason why. He says, okay, no big deal, and ends up calling another friend around 8.30 to ask her for help, but she stated she did not feel well and declined the offer. However, there is no evidence to back up the statement whatsoever. After she says no, John told law enforcement that he watched some TV, did some chores, and ends up going to bed around 11 o'clock. But again, there is no way for anybody to back up John's statements. So basically, he has no alibi. But law enforcement knows that around 11 o'clock on May 5th, a call came into the fire department. And remember, John is a volunteer firefighter, so he's expected to respond to these calls. But he didn't. So law enforcement asked John, why did you not respond to this call? And he stated that the other firefighters called and told him not to worry about it because they were on it, which ends up being a not true statement. While they were talking to John, they noticed that he had some scabs on his knuckles. And when he was asked about it, he said that a log that was on his fire had fallen out of his fireplace the night before. But you would think that if a log had fallen out of his fireplace onto his hand that there would be some burn marks. And they also noticed that there was an abrasion on his neck, which John stated it was from his stethoscope. But this abrasion was four to five inches above where his stethoscope sat. They did end up asking John about the biting incident months prior at the bar, but John states that he just doesn't remember it happening. Which, how do you not remember biting somebody in the face? And not even just biting them, but you bit them to the point where they bled. And you got arrested for it and you got charged. So I don't understand how he just happens to not remember it happening. Unfortunately, with very little evidence at the time, they had to let John go. However, just one month later, there was a warrant issued for his arrest. John was arrested and taken to the hospital where they got his blood, saliva, and hair samples. Law enforcement stated on the way to the hospital, John would just go from like really calm to totally erratic and just saying off the wall stuff. The officer stated that at one point, John looked him right in the eye and said, so what? I did it, but you'll never be able to prove it. However, John does end up being charged on November 4th, 1992. I went deeper into her autopsy to help give a full understanding of how sick and demented this guy was. Before we get into her autopsy, I just want to say really quickly that going through and reading through everything just really bothered me. I have known about this case since I was very little, given my family's involvement. 
I've heard my parents talk about it. I've heard my aunts talk about it. And I've always knew the extent of Kathleen's injuries. And I knew how crazy John was. But after reading it on paper, it is something that will never leave me. Kathleen had 14 abrasions on her skull. She had 7 abrasions on her face. All of her front teeth were either broken or completely gone. And taking a look back at the contents of her stomach, it was determined that she died just four hours after her last meal. Which means he savagely attacked her shortly after her dinner with her family. Forensics determined that the murder weapon was a fire poker that he had in his home and very sickeningly, after he killed her with it, he put it back into his house almost like a trophy. Forensics was able to determine that the attack on Kathleen took place inside John's home. There was more than enough evidence to back that up. So what really, really makes my stomach turn and just makes me have nightmares is the fact that he beat her that badly with a fire poker, put her in her car, and drove her to that area and she was still alive. Forensics determined that Kathleen took her last breath in her car when she was in the secluded wooded area. I cannot fathom how horrible of a death that is. 14 abrasions to her skull, 7 abrasions to her face, all of her front teeth broken and knocked out, and that poor girl was still alive. After a very extremely emotional trial, thank God John was found guilty of her murder and was sentenced to life in prison on July 18, 1993. However, given John's arrogance, he ended up putting in an appeal for a retrial. And unfortunately, he was granted that retrial. And it was because his defense team tried to say because she was found in one county and John lived in another county, he was not actually present in McHenry County where her body was found. Which again, they tried to make it sound like she was completely across town, but we know that she was less than a mile from his home. So given that their argument was very weak and there was nothing to back that up, thankfully, he ended up being found guilty again during that retrial, and his life sentence still stands. John has tried to get out on parole, but thankfully the parole board has always denied his release. And what is really sickening is people out there really believe John is innocent. His mother wholeheartedly believes that he never touched her, and he has had friends actually write to the parole board on his behalf, saying on how good of a person he is, which is really sad thing to say for both Kathleen and Maureen. My hope is that John will never be released back into our society again. He is a vile monster that needs to stay behind bars. I know that this is a very hard episode to listen to and I am so glad that I made the decision to go back and redo this episode because I really wanted everybody to understand the severity of what Kathleen went through. We have covered several different domestic violence stories we've done teen dating violence stories but this one in particular is one that will never leave me when we first started this podcast I wanted to start with this case because I knew it really well and I felt like I could talk about it confidently but the more I dug into this case and the further I got into things like the autopsy and all the court reports and the documents I really fully understood 
the extent of what she went through at that point. And I remember after researching this case more and more and then trying to go to bed at night, I couldn't sleep. I felt really uneasy. I felt sick to my stomach. I felt very scared sleeping in the dark, which is not something that I typically have an issue with. But something about the severity of what Kathleen and Maureen both went through is something that is very uncomfortable to hear about, but we know it's extremely important to talk about these kind of cases. The more we talk about it and the more awareness we bring gives the opportunity for more women and men both to be able to feel comfortable to step forward to get help to get out of their abusive relationship. If you are currently listening to these episodes and you are in an abusive relationship, we are begging and pleading with you to please turn to somebody you trust or your local law enforcement. If you do not feel comfortable with turning to somebody you trust or your local law enforcement, please call the National Domestic Violence Hotline at 1-800-799-7233. If you haven't already, I highly encourage you to join our Crimeholics podcast discussion group on Facebook or follow us on Instagram. I will have pictures of Kathleen posted and I will have information for those of you that may need some resources from the Domestic Violence Hotline. Crimeholics, as always, be aware and take care. Mm -hmm.